Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're going on a field trip today for Spirit in Action, but not a fun and games kind of field trip like maybe you had back in school. This is a trip to a hard, gritty, scary part of the world where horrible things have happened, but where a beautiful witness of love and hope is also happening. Our guest is Lisa Miara, and she's been working in northern Iraq, generally identified in the USA as an area occupied by Kurds. But Lisa has been dealing with the aftermath of the devastating attacks by ISIS on the Yazidi minority of the region. Many of the Yazidi men were killed, many women were killed or abducted, and the boys and girls were kidnapped to be abused, brainwashed, and trained to serve the purposes of the ISIS forces. Lisa, a resident of Jerusalem, had had to deal with her own trauma when terrorists gravely injured her son. But instead of becoming bitter or revengeful, she chose to work on the world's healing, inspiring many by her work through the Springs of Hope Foundation. We're headed via Zoom to Hope Center within the Sharia camp in northern Iraq to visit Lisa Miara, along with our friend Ran Mayer in Israel, who was until recently a correspondent of the Clarion Project. Lisa, I'm honored that you've chosen to join me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark, and thanks to Ran for the connection between us. I appreciate both of your efforts. And yes, Ran, I want to say hello to you again. Thank you so much. Your connections to people doing valuable world healing work across the world, in particular in the Middle East, is so important. Thank you so much for joining me as well. Thank you, and thank you for agreeing to host us. And Lisa, we're talking to you in, you're in northern Iraq, I believe, at this point. Could you tell me exactly where you're situated? I'm in a tiny Yazidi village, Mark, called Sharia village. It's a village that is part ancient Kurdish Yazidi families and part refugees who fled from ISIS Daesh in August 2014. It's about an hour from the Syrian border and about 50 minutes from the Turkish border. And you mentioned ISIS or Daesh. I think you need to explain the word Daesh because I'm sure that is never, I'd never heard it before encountering your writings, your readings, your video. Well, in this region of the world, people call it Daesh. It is the acronym for ISIS or ISIL for the Islamic State in the Levant. You're there because of the damage wrought by ISIL or ISIS or Daesh. Tell me about what happened there, because even though people in the United States know a little bit about some of the effect on the Kurds, almost nobody even knows what the people called Yazidi are. Well, the Yazidis are a very ancient minority group that were living for thousands, if not millennia, in northwest Iraq, in the regions between Mosul and Baj, on the, on the, in, just inside Syria. And they were a very closed agricultural, pastoral society who barely left their villages. If they left their villages, they were going for a wedding. They supplied the majority of Iraq with wheat, with barley, with figs, with pomegranates. 
And Daesh planned a very strategic invade and take and conquer and plunder of all of their ancient territory, which is either known as Sinjar or Shingal. And Daesh ISIS invaded on the 3rd of August 2014. Ethnic cleansing, 100% crimes against humanity, 100% war crimes, 100% and genocide, 100%. And we find that within the space of a few hours between 2 a.m. on this hot August night, And 7 a.m. to 10 a.m., you have close to half a million people uprooted and running for their lives. Around 12,000, possibly more, because numbers are, are always changing, were taken off into their captivity of ISIS, initially in the Tel Afar area, shifting places in North Iraq, Tel Afar region, Mosul, and then as ISIS progressed and took more territory into the heart of Raqqa, Deir Ezzor, Bakhuz in Syria. So you then have a situation where approximately 400,000 fled across the Turkish border, across the Syrian border, and then Kurdistan opened their borders to them and still host close to this amount, the majority in the province where I live. And then you have women and children taken off from this closed community into the bowels of ISIS, into the cubs of the caliphate, into Islamic schools and onto the Shuka Sabaya, the slave markets of both Mosul and Raqqa. And this is a genocide. Everything that has happened to these women and these kids in captivity is genocide and it is still ongoing because there are still at least 3,000 missing and more and more mass graves being uncovered every few months. Now, this travesty is almost completely unknown to most people in the United States. I think people in the U.S. have heard that the Kurds had some problems. The Kurds had problems with Saddam Hussein. The Kurds have problems from every side because they are a minority. But the Yazidi are a minority within a minority. Can you explain what the Yazidi are? They're not Muslim. and They're not Christian. They're not Jewish. They're Yazidi. Can you, what can you tell me about them? Yes, I want to emphasize here, Mark, that the Christian community and the Shabak community and the Kakai minorities have also suffered for many, many years, particularly under the Ba'ath regime and recently under ISIS. The one that has suffered the most, and this is just a pure statistical fact, not an opinion or a personal bias, is the Yazidi community. This is actually their 74th genocide no, sorry, 73rd genocide in 74 years. And the reason for ongoing persecution is because, as you say, they are neither Christian nor Muslim nor Jewish. They are not people of the book. They do not even own a written tradition. Or in the last few years, they are saying that there is a book that is written, but it is unaccessible to the majority by... ISIS, they are considered to be kafir, to be infidels. They have stubbornly refused to bow to Islam. 
they have refused to convert, and they have paid the price. Now, their religious beliefs and traditions are somewhat hard to track. The closest relatives would be a blend of Zoroastrianism and Mithraism. They certainly include the four elements, the sun, the water, the fire, probably the earth. It's a very secret society. If you ask Yazidi, for example, this Friday we have an Eid. The same Arabic word is used for the Muslim holidays, an Eid, a festival. Ask Yazidi, what exactly is this festival about? If you ask someone from Sinjar, he'll give you one answer. If you ask Yazidi from Kurdistan, he'll give you another answer. So it, everything is not clear cut, but they are not people of the book. They have elements of Christianity embraced, elements of Judaism embraced, and elements of, of many other things embraced too. So they are a minority within a minority. They've stubbornly resisted. My understanding is there's maybe a half a million or so Yazidis? Correct. You're particularly in a camp there that you've been working healing with. Uh, Springs of Hope is your foundation, but there's also a specific part of the camp that you occupy. Could you tell me about who's working there with the group that you're part of in this foundation? Yes, well, Springs of Hope actually worked with uh, victims of terrorism in Israel for 15, 16 years. And uh, six years ago, I was invited into Kurdistan, actually to a different region, to Halabja, which suffered greatly, I mean, horrifically under the Ba'ath regime and Saddam Hussein. And having spent a few days in Halabja, we decided that it was our obligation as human beings to go and see the very, very fresh genocide and at that point, 24,000 Yazidis in Sharia camp, Sharia camp where I am now based. I would have had no idea then, Mark, this was January, February 2015, that today we would have a large campus with land given to us by the Kurdish regional government inside this 20,000 now person Yazidi camp, where we have an educational campus, a sports campus, a medical campus, and a campus dealing with trauma. And the majority of our work is with kids, women, youth, who have been rescued from ISIS or escaped from ISIS or purchased back by family members from ISIS, women who have been trafficked and raped to have many children by captors. They've been in captivity now for over six years. And young men and young boys who were drafted into the army of the caliphate and have been totally frontline soldiers, some of them even under al-Baghdadi himself. It's almost unimaginable what happened there. Both from my point of view, I understand you've got a British passport, you're living in Israel, you face trauma of your own with respect to terrorism. Can you give us a little bit better picture? I mean, I don't think that in the U.S., our problems are with having bad hair days, right? <laughs> or <laughs> we don't get to go out to a restaurant because of COVID-19. 
the idea that when this mass theft and genocide went on, children hauled away, women hauled away. What degree are we talking about? What what happened? Can you talk about individual stories? I can. We have two girls. They are so thin. They are so fragile. Their faces are white, close to expressionless. The expressions I see are fear and fear of getting close. One is close probably to 16 now, and her sister is close to 14. They look age-wise about 12 and 10. They were captured and taken and separated from their families when they were eight and six years, respectively. They were put for four months into a prison near Mosul while ISIS decided what to do with them. And this was part of also of a strategy of hold, separate, isolate, change their names, force them to speak Syrian Arabic, force them into the Islamic, or let's say the, the ISIS, the Daeshi ideology and then move them into position where they're ready to go on to the slave market, when they are broken, when they are obedient, when then they will not fight back. The youngest one was eight years and three months when she was raped by a 50-year-old Algerian captor. And he brought his best buddies in also to share her as plunder, as prize of war with his best buddies who were all foreign captors. And this little kid, who is today barely 14, she can hardly stand straight. Her back alone has been so injured by the weight of these men. Now, when she goes to have a shower, and it's not, as you very correctly say, it's not America with a nice jacuzzi and a large bedroom and a bathroom and dressing room. These are public bathrooms, public washrooms where people come in and go out all of the time. If anybody was to come into the bathroom, she goes ballistic, she goes crazy. She becomes like a wild animal if anybody sees her. When these two girls were being held in Mosul in this prison, along with others, ISIS would send their captors in. They were doing checks to find out the best market price for these girls. So it's not just looking to see who's blonde and there are some who's more auburn and there are some or who's dark-skinned or who is thinner or fatter. It means inserting anything they feel like, including their own body, into these young girls' vaginas at the age of six to see who is a virgin and who's not. It's just, it's mental and physical torture. And I cannot begin to imagine how these girls are torn apart, physically, emotionally, and in every way. And yet we see these girls over a period of time and it takes time, it takes, a, it takes setting up a very, very safe place for them where they're really literally cosseted with love and incredible patience 
we do watch the change coming, but it's this is a commitment here for the long haul. We have women. I saw one this afternoon. It's um, as I said to you, it's uh, the Yazidi festival, the Eid on Friday. And so we're giving some of these women dresses that some of our sewing ladies have made. And a particular lady we invited in to come and choose a couple of dresses. And she is one that she was tied to a revolving ceiling fan for five days for daring to refuse rape. And as it was whizzing around, she was just being beaten constantly for five days. And when they finally stopped the fan and let her down, of course, she's, she's out of it, but she still screamed and she still bit. And so they threw her five floors out of a window. Legs are broken. When she came to us, she could barely stand. And so she had to go and have her legs reset. The atrocities, one can never get one's mind around the depths and the height and the breadth of evil that, quite frankly, the Western world turned a blind eye to. These people are Zoroastrians, or these people are pagans, or these people are refugees. They're over there in the Middle East. It's not our problem. Why should we get involved? Sorry, friends, but these people are giving their lives and pushing Daesh back, pushing ISIS back. I believe I'd be so bold today to say something that wouldn't even occur to me a year ago. We have been granted the honor, the privilege, the joy and the responsibility of bringing these kids who are soldiers and who are brainwashed and women who are slaves some of them with three or four babies now who are still in Al-Hol camp or with the terrorists wherever they've gone. And as far as we're concerned, a territory, or let's rephrase, a territorial area has concluded its period. But Daesh is very, 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 very alive and well and kicking. And every day there's a new challenge. There's new situations that we would have never dreamed possible. And I think with all honesty, for myself and my staff, if somebody had written a declaration five years ago and said, hey, you'll be dealing with A, you'll be dealing with B, C will raise its head, D will come at you, will you still sign on the dotted line? We'd have all run away. I am quite amazed, Lisa, that you opened yourself to the calling to be there. I mean, it really is amazing. And I'm so thankful for your work there. Now, again, you're doing this with respect to the foundation, Springs of Hope, and the little center that you've created there, the Hope Center, within the Sharia camp, the work that you're doing. Are you there a full-time resident? Is this half year? Is this one month a year you go somewhere fundraising? How does this work? In the beginning, it was really going in for about a month and then going back and in and out. Of the last three years, at least, I have a house and a dog, and I live here. And I do go back. I have my kids and my grandkids in Jerusalem, and I have to go fundraising, though that is becoming less and less. And of course, with this last year in COVID, none whatsoever. So yes, I am here. Who was Lisa Miara before you went to join the Yazidis? What was your work? I mean, obviously, you're a healer. You're a passionate healer. Was that your work before? Again, yes. But again, by default, my eldest son was, I hate the word victim, let's use the word target, was the target of a lynch where 
around 20 Hamas students targeted him to kill him in December 1998 at the Ayos Junction just outside Ramallah. That day, I got a call around 4 p.m. saying my son was alive but very badly beaten up in the hospital of, of Hadassah and Karim in Jerusalem. It was a day, obviously, that changed his life as it changes every survivor of a, of a terror attack's life. But it, it changed my life too, in as much as terror had walked now into my house, into my living room, into our bedrooms, into our kitchen. It was now personal. To my surprise, to my shock, I would not have known this about myself but something rose up and I literally eyeballed an invisible monster and said, you've walked into the wrong house. This is not going to take us down. This is not going to destroy us. And I can remember, I don't know what the time frame would have been, but my son did go down and he fought back. He fought back hard. And he's a strong, healthy kid today. But there was one day when I said to him, if you think these terrorists were your nightmare, if you don't start to get up and get on your feet, I will be your worst nightmare. <laughs> and I mean, we thought I probably did everything wrong. I mean, don't write a manual on, on those years. I'm not sure how I'd feel about having Lisa Miara as my mother. It's just <laughs> the greatest supporter and your worst terror if you go the wrong way. <laughs> But that, that was the beginning of this journey, Mark, a journey that no one would have wanted, anticipated, let alone known where it would take me. I'm the Jerusalemite. I like, you know, like Cinderella. I've got to be home at midnight. I don't sleep out in Tel Aviv. I go home. I don't go to Haifa and sleep out. I go home. And here I am in the land between the two rivers, where really our forefathers have a lot of a track record here with these incredible people. I mean, I look at them today. I've just come for an English online class and I look at them. These kids who have lived for six years. I have to send you a picture of the state of the tents. I mean, they're just, they're catastrophic. They're catastrophic. There's new infrastructure well, let me leave it there. They're catastrophic. And these kids come out dressed to their nines, their hair full of wax and everything coiffured, you know. And they're on the tablets learning English online with a confidence and a freedom and a purpose and a directive. I am astounded. I saw both written and I think I saw a recording of it as well. You're talking about a boy who came to the camp. Now, he had been abducted as a child, trained as a soldier. Again, the Yazidi are not Muslim. They're not Christian. They're not Jewish. So he had to be trained to become an Islamic fighter. He met you, and of course, you speak English, and that if you speak English, he has to kill you. Talk about that situation and where that went with him. How long? That was a couple few years ago, right? That must be two years ago. This was this, actually the sweetest story. I came out of my house one morning and I was simply going to go shopping and all the houses have sitting steps outside because 4 p.m. the women go outside and sit and chat. 
So little Aham was sitting on my step. And I go outside and this tiny little thing looks at me and in perfect, I mean, I couldn't do this American English. She says to me, are you Miss Lisa? And I was so taken aback. I said, and who may you be, sir? And he said, I'm Aham. I said, would you like to come in, Aham? And he said, is that your dog? And I said, yes, it is. Does he bite? No, he doesn't. Then I'll come in. And we sat down at my kitchen table. I mean, he must have been only eight years old. I doubt that he's got 10 today, Mark. So eight max. And he's a brilliant, clear thinker and speaker. And he told me his story of how his also Algerian captor married a woman from Texas who left Texas to make her way to Syria in order to marry a Daesh fighter. And yes, he was a soldier and yes, he was trained and his speciality is, is rifle shooting. And although he's totally brilliant and he's one that did go back into the school system, despite the par age-wise and cognitively with his peers, he's number one in his class, but he's trained as a sniper and he has a lot of anger in him. And if there's a trigger, his response is immediately. You could see that the accuracy and the precision plus the speed of a sniper come into, into play. And his is a good story, but it's also a sad story. His father remarried. His mother is lost in ISIS or dead. And his father remarried. When he came home, he found he was living with his uncle. His father was living next door to him with a new wife and new children and disowned him and moved on. A brilliant kiddie. The cream of the cream, as we would say. But he has a lot of training in him at a very young, vulnerable age. And that, again, is part of the strategic brilliance of ISIS. I mean, pure evil. Remove the father figures so they cannot protect the women. Get the grandmothers who have no ability to either serve or, or to be of use for sexual trade. Get them out of the way. Then take the mothers then split the girls and the boys, and both the girls and the boys can do everything that is demanded of them. We have one young boy today, maybe nine years old, part of his grooming into obedience for the sake of the caliphate was 15 days tied, handcuffed and tied and blindfolded on a roof in Syria, in the heat, no food, no water. Don't you die after 15 days without water? He should have done. Of course he should have done. 40, 45 Celsius, maybe more. I don't know how that kid is alive. We have kids today who I see running around with all of their zest for life, with all of their shouting on our football courts. But a year ago, when they came out of Bahu's, they were skeletons. They looked as if they came out of a concentration camp swollen bellies with malnutrition, having been given for five years a plate of rice, maybe twice a week, nothing else. I sat with one little kid in his tent when he came back, and I said, what's your dream? 
He said, I want to play football. He said, I love football. He said, but look at my legs. Now, if I look at my circumference of my wrist, it's, it's small, it's thin. He was half of mine on his legs. There was nothing. And he said to me, my bones hurt. He said, there's a pain inside my bones. They're on fire. Well, of course, no calcium, no magnesium, no nutrients. Everything had dissipated from his bones. And he said, believe me, I did everything that they told me. But at the end of the day, every day, they would put his feet in what we figured out was something like wooden stocks and passed electric currents through his legs every day. This, it leaves us without words. Yes, it does. Folks, today for Spirit in Action, we're speaking with Lisa Miara. She is in a camp in northern Iraq and is there to work with the Yazidi people. We identify that region as the Kurdish area of Iraq here, and we'll get more into the healing work that Lisa and her co-workers are doing there after we understand, I think, initially the dimensions of the tragedy, the violence that has been done to that area. But first, I have to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website where you'll find all 15 years of our guests for Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul. You'll find a link to the Springs of Hope Foundation that Lisa is active with and it's part of who sponsors the Hope Center there on the Sharia camp, again, in this area of Iraq. Also on our site, you'll have the ability to comment on and rate our programs. Please do that and make our communication two-way. And I do hope you follow the link to our guests, like to Lisa and her work there. Also on our site, there's a donate button. Click on there to help us. That's the way we fund this full-time work. But of course, all of our guests who are doing this world healing work, almost all of them can use your funding. So please follow the links to them as well. And remember to support your alternative forms of media. Community Radio Station is where my programs go. But I want to specifically say a big thanks again to Ran Mayer, who is also with us today, kind of hanging in the background there. He brought Lisa Miara to me, and I'm thankful for that. And his work with the Clarion Project over the past years has been invaluable to making the world a better place. So thank you again, Ron. Again, Lisa Miara is here. She, I say here, uh, she's got probably another half an hour of electricity before they turn off electricity in the camp where she is. With some, I understand something like 25,000 people. Is that steady state? Does that decrease? Do they get to go back home? Are there homes for people? When the camp was opened between September and October, a couple of months after the genocide began, so probably around October time in 2014, there were 25,000 Yazidis in the camp. Today, the numbers are around 20,000. A few did return to Sinjar a couple of years back and stayed. A few more have recently gone back. Some stayed and some returned because there is no security apart from the fact all of the houses are bombed. All of the infrastructure is bombed. There are also still mines behind every door and it is not a secure place. So yes, some have gone, some have stayed, but some have also returned. 
you talked a fair amount about the children, which I've seen the photos and they're such beautiful children and they're so engaging. I, I can certainly understand how they'll grab someone's heart. You've talked a bit about what happened with some of the women, mainly the younger ones, but what happened to the men, the Yazidi men? The Yazidi men, one village, Kojo village in particular, the men went out as an act of resistance and fought until the end. I mean, this is only a few hours again, but they fought with everything they had to protect their women and, and children. And these men were finally caught, rounded up, taken to an area by the cement factory and just all shot one after the other in all of these mass graves. There are some men, when I say 11, 12,000 were taken into ISIS, there is basically no record of the missing men. Are they in mass graves that still have not been either opened or where the bones have not yet been ID'd? Or are they missing somewhere in Syria? There's very little knowledge about the men. We work with these kids who know their fathers and their brothers are in this, these mass graves. And they say to us, we've got to go to Shingal to give DNA in the way that we would say, I'm going to the dentist tomorrow. It's become matter of fact. It's a people with one foot in the grave, but a people that are fighting for life. And as a Quaker, you will probably recall Jeremiah, who speaks about Israel drowning in her own blood. I forget what chapter, it could be 17, but drowning in her own blood. And he says, I said to her, live, live. And he talks about washing her. And I feel this is how I'm looking at these people there. They're drowning in their own blood, but they are fighting for life with every breath that is in them. I'm so stunned by the thought and, and, and what I haven't known about the society there. So if a lot of the men, the brothers, the fathers were killed, the women and children were exported to be converted, and now a number of them have been returned somehow, how does one go about rebuilding the Yazidi society, this Yazidi culture, these people? A very, very pertinent question, Mark. You have two issues here, or two main issues, and again, they're both multi-leveled. You have the 400,000 what are called IDPs, internally displaced. Those who faced ISIS, who were ambushed by ISIS, but escaped. They were not taken into captivity. That within a period of one day to three months, they were intense in the Kurdistan region. All of them with loved ones lost and missing. So they're physically there, they're safe. They haven't been taken, but it's a tribal community. So you know, I'll give you a, a prime example. A very, very dear friend of ours, Abdallah, he was a beekeeper from Sinjar. And he became one of the first rescuers, literally a James Bond man on a mission par excellence, man who does not read, a man who does not write, a man who knew bees and beekeeping and honeymaking. And through his trade connections in Syria, by selling his honey, he was able to establish basically a grab them and run operations. 
that over a period of time, he had to negotiate with the darkest places in this blackness of ISIS to locate the girls and often to ransom them. So you have what is called the IDPs, all with family missing, all even six years later, they walk around. If they hear someone's been found in Al-Holkam, they walk around with photographs, six years old now, just what they happen to have saying, do you have any information? Have you heard? Have you seen? They come to us to our gates when they hear someone has come from Al-Hol to us a new girl or a new guy or a new kid, will you ask them if, do they know, have they seen? You have men of 40 years old who are productive members of the community who are now living in the camps. They're bipolar. They're schizophrenic because of the intense trauma that happened to them in this period of time that is off the radar. It's way beyond chronic post-traumatic syndrome. It's I don't think there is a a category for this. So you have the people in the camps who have suffered and suffered differently. And then you have those who have been like in the belly of this dragon and have been spewed out. And what do you do with them? What do you do? I saw a woman on Saturday when I was there and I did a back take when I walked in because she was totally nicapped. And she had just come out of Al-Holkamp. She doesn't believe that she's Yazidi. Her memory has been so suppressed and repressed that she has no recollection of her village, of her parents' names, of her family. And it was one of our girls who was in Al-Hol and who was rescued that identified her and gave her name and her tent number and her section number to another Yazidi rescuer to get her out. At the moment, this girl is furious and totally confused. Well, I can't go to her and say, excuse me, dear, you're now in Springs of Hope Foundation. You're in the Hope Center. You're Azidi. Please take off your niqab and your hijab and all your layers and dump the black and let's wear pink. You can't do it. You've got to live with it slowly, slowly. And some of our girls have said to us, we felt naked if we were not fully covered. And we felt that all of the eyes were upon us. But we felt safe in Springs of Hope to take the black garb off. We did a crazy thing a few years ago, Mark. It was totally crazy. And I hope we're going to do a less wild but adventurous repeat in March this coming year. We did a fashion show for 20 girls that had been released from ISIS. Talk about fools rushing where angels fear to tread. I think the angels are still shaking. Look at those crazies. <laughs> but we had an awesome Christian fashion designer from Hollywood that somehow, word of mouth, this idea she heard. And we connected and she said, hey, I'm in. I'm going to donate these dresses. Oh, wow. Just find the girls, measure them, give me a leaders to Yazidi colors, what they're allowed to wear, not what to wear, design, so on. She designed 20 ball dresses. We took these girls, we worked with them for about six months. 
we took them to a hotel in Dohok and then just to shower them, to do makeup, to do hair, to do nails. The hotel were incredible to us, to give them lunch. And then, of course, you know, last minute, the penny drops. We were putting them into a bus with a driver. And I thought, oh, my goodness, a bus with the driver. That's how they were taken on to Mosul and prepped for the slave markets. And here we're putting these same girls into a bus and taking them to a hotel, to a city. They've never been outside their village. And we're doing the same thing. So we spoke to the driver and we asked him to put on happy music and give them candy. Come into the hotel. They'd never been into an elevator. They were terrified. Finally, we were losing all of our girls and they were going up and down 20 floors in the elevator because they liked the idea. But we had to think of everything. We had to think how it was possible that they were presented in front of these men and we'd done this event for women. We prep the girls, we get them behind stage. I walk out and the first 10 rows are nothing but men. We didn't invite the men, the men came. And so we had to regroup again and to think how to do this. They were all dignitaries, all VIPs sitting in the first 10 rows. (laughs) If you (laughs) tip them out of their chairs, they'll be offended forever. And yet there was no way we could have these girls being presented to 10 rows of men. To the slave market, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. It was like, oh, horrors. This is being reenacted in front of our eyes. So we had to redo that and bring some girls to stand in front and get girls holding candy and gifts in front of the men and blocking their view, bring all of the 20 out at once so it wasn't a parading of one-on-one. But these are the things that actually give them value. One of the most treasured photographs I have somewhere of that event was a young girl, maybe 16 years old, called Jamila. Olive skin, dark hair, bright blue, turquoise eyes. And we had laid a table out as a backdrop with all of their black clothes the hijab, the the full garb, the niqab, the gloves, the stockings, everything black was laid out there. I saw her taking a selfie with the black in the background. She was wearing gold, (laughs) made up with delicacy, and she was taking, there was this gold radiating off this black. I just wept. And I can tell stories that these are stories of brutality. These are stories of evil. They're incomprehensible. And I know there is still more to come and it's worse than we've ever seen or heard. But I have to say, hope has a color. Hope has a name. Hope is tangible. Hope lives. Hope reigns. Hope rises from the ashes. And we can deal with crises because we live in hope, because they taste and feel love every single day. Lisa, can you talk about maybe what activities you're doing for the children in their, like, in their free time? That's, it's, it's a very relevant, again, question, Ron. We bring kids in in the winter hours. We bring them in from 15 different camps, not just from Sharia camps. We have 15 drivers, minibuses, vans, pickups, going to the camps to collect the kids that were in ISIS, and have no program and bring them to us. And then we have the kids of the camp. So our gates in winter 
open at 9 a.m. until 1 p.m. and then again at 2 p.m. to 4.30 officially, but if the kids are still there playing, someone stays. And then we have a program. The sewing factory works morning and afternoon for the women and the girls. Then we have the English We have the music, we have the sports, we have the art, we have art exhibitions. We've just done an incredible, if you can see these two paintings behind me, one of this angel was part of our exhibition this last month of elimination of violence against women. Courtesy of both the Springs of Hope and Lisa Miara. But I'm still wondering, I'm totally convinced, I'm captivated by you, Lisa. It's clear that you have a power for healing and love that exceeds the average scope of maybe superhuman. Maybe you're a saint. I don't know that Jewish has any. <laughs> Well, I probably have different ideas about what is a saint from most people, again, because I'm Quaker. I grew up Catholic, though. We did have regular saints there. But what equipped you to do this? I understand part of what motivated, but were you a human resources manager? Were you a therapist? Were you a dance performer? What did you do that got you ready to work in one of the most traumatic centers and to engage in healing for these children and people? I didn't do anything. 20 terrorists walked into my home and I was in the biggest, blackest, darkest hole of my life, not knowing what to do, how to crawl out, how to help get my son out. And at that point, because it was the first incident of this kind that had happened to an Israeli soldier, our phones were going off the radar cell phones. We have an unusual name. It was easy to find in the yellow pages. Let your fingers do the walking and believe 20,000 people's fingers did their walking overnight and came to us. And I'm the kind of person that today I, I can say, I don't know. Believe me, I can say, I don't know. But in those days, my pride would not let me say, I don't know. So when somebody would email me or text me or write a letter What do you do about PTSD? What do you do about sleepwalking? What do you do about this? What do you do? My father, my mother, my wife, my brother, my sister. There was no way I was going to say, I don't know. I simply had to know. I had to know Quranic warfare from A to Z. I had to know Islamic eschatology. I had to know. And this did take me also into a journey of very, very personal healing. There was no way, I mean, this is a subject I, I find very personal and it can be, it's a very complex subject, but I, there was no way that I could help my son heal if I had areas that were unhealed in me, if I had hatred, if I had a desire for revenge, if I wanted to see blood spilled on those that tried to spill his blood, I would be toxic to him. I would be toxic to everybody. So I really had to go through a wrestling match with myself, and I believe even at times with God, to see me emerge as a person with, let's say, I hope more love, more tolerance, more patience, more understanding, more compassion, more compassion for the stranger. But it's an ongoing journey. It's an ongoing discovery. 
I could get offended 20 times a day. It's a misogynist nation. <laughs> I've taken on male workers. And then the next day, they look at me as if to say, excuse me, you're a woman. How dare you ask me to do this, you know? But you just have to sort of die to self and go on and look for the bigger picture and breathe deeply and go on. And I always believe love wins. Love cannot fail. Love has to win. And in love, there's the power of life. And I think this is what we're seeing. Go onto our Facebook page. You're not going to see ragged, torn, depressed kids. You're going to see kids that with all of the loss, with all of the suffering that is still ongoing, are smiling. I'll never forget these kids that went up to Sinja just a month ago and spent four days inside graves, alongside graves, identifying bodies and then burying them. And they came back and they went into English and they went into art. And it's not a denial. It's not a, I'm boxing it in here. And it's, it's just, they're fighting for life. They want to know. You said if people go to your website, is that the springsofhope.foundation website? And folks, the link is on nordenspiritradio.org. That's where you can follow and get a hold of Lisa Miara and the work of the Hope Center at Sharia Camp there in the Kurdish region, northern Iraq, where she is. Just a couple more questions. Actually, I could probably sit and talk to you for four or five hours and my day would be better. You've got a great smile. Did anybody ever mention that to you? I think that must be transformative for the kids as well. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about how this comes out of who you are, maybe religiously. You talked about wrestling with God. Isn't that how Israel was born, right? Wrestling with God. I saw in at least one clip you speaking about Tikkuna Olam, healing of the world, which is your work. And the thing that most captivated me, though, was so many people with your situation dealing with the effects of terrorism on your family would turn to retribution, revenge, and you choose instead hope. And there's something about why you choose love instead of hate that if we could bottle that and pass that out to the world, we wouldn't constantly have people who've been abused passing on abuse to others. One of the things I also read, Lisa, was that there are people who have been abducted, children who've been abducted, who've been trained, brainwashed. They've had to adopt their new society, a religion, and they've refused to come back said, no, this is where I belong. And there are people who come back, as you said, you know, you speak English, therefore I have to behead you, right? Oh, Uh, yes. How common is that? How do you get past that? Because as you said, the the one young woman, she doesn't want to be here. She's angry at people. How does that transformation happen? How do people give up their brainwashing? And it's common. It's everywhere in the world. I'm good, other people are bad. And once you identify with a group, then you don't see the bad in yourself. It's anybody who threatens that. So again, how do you do that transformation? I had, first of all, you referred to Aham saying, you, oh, it was Akram, little Akram who had had all of these bullets shot directly into his stomach. He became target practice for them. And when he heard me speak English and he said, I, have to, I will have to behead you. And I love that kid. And he's actually in Canada and is doing well. 
But how does this happen? It doesn't always happen. To my great surprise, Mark, it is easier, let's use the word to rehab or to normalize or to bring back into society and community. It is way easier to see even the teenage and young adult frontline fighters who have been main men in the army of ISIS, who have been beheaded, who have shot, who have murdered on a daily basis. It is way easier to see them disengage and to re-engage with culture, education, and vocation than the women. And that is one of the surprises that has taken me in the last couple of years and has taken my CEO, Dr. Said, and some of my staff. The women, those who did not get pregnant, it is not a hard process to see them re-embrace their identity, etc., But those who have children, there are many sad stories. It's amazing, both the work that you're doing, the world healing you're doing, the tikkun olam that you're doing. So many people who've been abused turn and become abusers themselves. And I'm so thankful that you're interrupting that chain of abuse through your work at the Hope Center and with, again, folks, the springsofhope.foundation is the website where you can support and find out more about the work of Lisa Miara and the other good workers with her there. Again, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking this time. I know there's a lot of needy souls who are right outside your door that you've been ministering to. I want to thank you for that ministry and for sharing that ministry here for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark, and thank you again, Ron. Yes, Ron, and thank you for connecting me with Lisa and, again, through your work at the Clarion Project and your continuing work in your new avocation, whatever that is. Thank you for helping us out. Thank you, and thank you for agreeing to host us. And again, folks, the link is on the northernspiritradio.org website to springsofhope.foundation. Look at the Hope Center Project and also listen on northernspiritradio.org to bonus excerpts from this interview with Lisa Miara that sadly couldn't fit into the broadcast version. There are some choice bits of illumination and information and heart there. Thank you all for listening today, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh